Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 41 being recorded on Tuesday, August 16th. 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and this episode is sponsored by the NRF, the National Retail Federation. Scott and I are going to be doing live podcasts from the Shop.org Digital Summit this year, which is in Dallas, Texas, September 26th through the 28th. In fact, we have a custom discount code just for listeners of the show, and that code is Jason Ampersand Scott. So that's J A S O N ampersand s-c-o-t and if you enter that in on the retail digital summit.nrf.com website you'll get 10 percent off on a full registration uh, now as usual i'm here with your co-host scott wingo hey jason what part of the world are you in today i am in a comfortable seattle washington where it is not hot and humid Ooh, I am burning, scalding hot, Raleigh, North Carolina, where it is heat index well over 105 degrees and a thousand percent relative humidity. So it is pretty sweltering here, but we're living the dream and the air conditioning and surviving. I, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it's very hot and humid in Chicago, and I've been on the road quite a bit the last couple of weeks, and it feels like the whole country is on a heat wave. So this is the first destination I've had in a while where I feel like I'm uh, finally beating the heat. Cool. The uh, Has Pokemon Go swept the locals of Seattle into a, a frenzy? Do you see them wandering around the streets like zombies catching Snorlaxes and stuff? I have. I have both seen people playing Pokemon, and there are uh, still Pokemon segments on the local newscast here. So, so it is certainly a buzz, but it mostly just makes me feel guilty because I feel like with my travel schedule, I'm in a unique position to capture the whole array of Pokemon, and I like I, I have to confess uh, I'm not putting the requisite amount of time in. Mm. Well, at Summit, we'll have to catch up. The Another fun fact for you is I did a holiday webinar today, and I was a little shocked to realize there's only 99 days till Thanksgiving. So the year is really flying by, and if you're one of our listeners, you're probably a retailer. So you have about 100 days to get that holiday plan really kind of locked down. Yeah, and even more importantly, 86 days until Singles Day. Well, Yeah. I had not thought of that. You, uh, it's even closer. Yeah. So the sad thing is, you know, I'll, I still get the calls about starting holiday holiday readiness assessments, and the the sad short answer is, it's pretty late. <laughs> That's your assessment. Yeah, I Here's mean, my assessment. You're pretty late. <laughs> well, you're you're thinking about it pretty late. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well. Uh, you know, we, we've had a good run of interviews. We did a little bit of news last week, and this week we're going to return to one of our more popular segments that we call the Deep Dive, and we're going to talk about one of everyone's favorite topics and one that you're super well-versed in. Uh, sometimes you maybe should be called the Payment Geek or or Retail and Payment, but that's kind of a, long, a mouthful. Uh, there's a lot of payment... Uh, changes happening in the space at the moment. So we thought we'd use this show this week to really kind of do a deep dive. It's also near and dear to our heart at the Jason and Scott show because we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of mobile. And that's where a lot of the innovation around payment is happening is the smartphone level. Uh, and so it's just a really good topic. And I think mentioning the holiday, it's one of the biggest things people can do to move the needle on their mobile holiday success. So uh, before we dive in, one kind of framework to think through is the use cases of payments. When are, when are you going to use these payments? You have the old school in-store. And there, you know, we here in the U.S., we, we had swipe for a long time as kind of the, the normal way you would pay with a credit card. Um, and then because of several high-profile breaches, we moved to uh, the chip and signature or chip and dip uh, kind of thing, uh, which always makes me hungry for some guacamole. Uh, but, you know, there's there's a lot of issues with speed with that. Uh, you know, the, the 
I find it tricky that most of places I go, you know, there's all these signs that say, like I was in the pet store the other day and they had a big sign, you know, do not dip your chip or, or do not insert chip. Um, so, so, you know, you kind of, there's this really weird inconsistency around what's supposed to be this new ultra secure way of doing things. Um, that's also, you know, painfully slow. Uh, so in store is one area that, that definitely look forward to hearing more about. Um, and then you have your in app. So if you're, uh, in an app, uh, like Pokemon go and you want to poke it, purchase some pokey coins uh either digital or physical things that that's another kind of system there uh the on web which is kind of the the desktop metaphor for you know that that amazon really did a lot of innovation around with one click uh and then uh, aside from that a couple of other hot topics are how do you how do you merge affinity in with these new payment methodologies and pick up the loyalty? So you know, be it your uh, Nordstrom's card or your stars at Starbucks or whatever. You know, every every really good retailer and brand has some kind of a, an award for loyalty and and how do we make sure those things work across all these systems? Uh, and then finally, how do you how do you kind of tie offers in? Is is it a good platform for kind of saying, hey, if you um, do, if you buy this much, you get something off or even, you know, thinking about the different way of seeding how you pay for things. So if you pay this way or do this uh, with ACH, then maybe you pay one level versus another, something like that. So Jason, uh, with that kind of high level overview of the different use cases and kind of important topics uh, in the minds of, of consumers and retailers uh what kind of framework do you have for thinking about the payment landscape yeah scott thanks very much for setting it up um when folks want to talk about payments they're they're generally asking about which specific vendors or which specific method should i support and you know there are new players uh that are both big companies and small startups that are coming to the space every week and so what I've tried to do is kind of put together a little framework uh, for my own sanity to sort of sort these these payments into a couple of different types. Um, so the uh, to me, there are there are um, four big categories of payment vendors. The first category of payment vendors are what I call device payment vendors. Right. And so these are payment systems that are tied to a specific uh, brand of device and uh, are only supported on that device. So Apple Pay would be a famous example of a, a, a device-specific payment method that, of course, only works on the, the Apple iOS ecosystem. Uh, Android has a competing system that's now called Android Pay that's, of course, only available on Android phones. Uh, and then Samsung has a, a, a brand-specific payment system that only works on Samsung Android phones, for example. And so the that that's that first category of, of payments. Uh, we'll come back and talk about some of the specific providers. Um, that the second category are banks that are offering payment solutions. And so that would uh, an example of that would be like Chase Pay, which is a, a particular bank. Uh, then, of course, a lot of the traction recently has been retailers offering their own payment systems. So the, the most popular example to date there is Starbucks. Um, and then I have a fourth bucket that's sort of my catch-all that I call Other. And Other would have things in it like payment networks. So Visa and MasterCard have their own wallets at this point. And this would also include uh, folks like PayPal, um, and a, a lot of the sort of new startups that aren't tied to a particular retailer, bank, or device, I, I put in that that fourth bucket called other. So does that sort of uh, make sense and help you help sort of at least categorize all of these different payment providers? Yeah, it does. Um, and I've used most of the ones you talked about, but I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on, I guess we'll just start at the, the top of the list there, um, you know, well, I guess a, a meta question is who do you think is going to win? You know, so um, you just put a lot of different numbers out there. Uh, I hear all these things like Apple has a billion cards on file, and um, but then you hear some of the Starbucks momentum. Walmart's a big player. There was one you didn't mention. Um, it used to be called ISIS, and they unfortunately had to change their name. I, did they wrap that up, or are they going to do that anymore, or is that still a thing? Nope, it has basically died at this point. Um, it, uh, ISIS that then became uh, uh, 
WMX. Um, ah. And uh, now uh, it, it looks like it's not coming to market at all. Okay. And that was like Walmart and Target and AT&T or something? A consortium of retailers. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. the uh, the most frequent question you get is who's going to win. And the, the answer is no one player is likely to win. It, if It's probably not a winner-take-all market. There's probably going to be multiple payment solutions out there. And if you think about that categorization I just gave you, by default, no one in the first three categories could win the entire market, right? Like Because not everyone has an Apple phone, so Apple can't win payments. And, you know, uh, similarly, not everyone has an Android phone. Not everyone uses the same bank. So no bank uh, payment system could be an outright winner. And no one retailer could be an outright winner. So the only possible winner take all candidates would be the folks that are in that last bucket. Um, but I would submit that even they aren't going to win the overall market, that that lots of different consumers are going to choose these different methods for different reasons. Uh, and us as retailers are going to have to get clever uh, about uh, deciding both which ones we support and and how we support them to sort of maximize the uh, efficiency and friction for, for our shoppers. Hmm. Um, so looking at the devices, I, I think um, well, maybe just walk us through, I, I think most people are pretty familiar with Apple pay, but uh, I have not, I can never get Android pay um, and or Samsung pay to work on my phone. It, it always gets stuck in kind of the registration process. Uh, have you ever, have you used those and, and what are your thoughts on, on those systems? Yeah. So uh, we mentioned the big three in devices are Apple, Android, and Samsung, uh, and I've certainly used all three. Uh, Apple, of course, gets the most buzz, and I'll remind listeners there's some constraints on the Apple system. It only works on the latest generation of Apple hardware that has a specific encryption chip in it. So that's uh, on the phones, that's the Apple 6, the 6S, um, that uh, I don't believe it's in any iPads yet. Uh, it it is in the watch, but only when the watch is paired with one of those other uh, phones that that has the the chip in it. So you can sort of think of the watch as an extension of one of those those two phones. So it's a so Apple Pay at the moment is a pretty limited market because only a subset of all Apple users are on that latest hardware, and then only a subset of the users on that hardware have actually loaded a payment card into uh, the wallet and you know and generally everyone that goes to the trouble to load a payment card into the wallet uses the wallet at least once but there's a lot of third-party research at the moment that shows that Apple Pay has not been particularly sticky for users. So there's a much higher number of users that have tried it once than that are active weekly or monthly users. So at the moment uh, it it does not look like Apple Pay is a financial home run for Apple. Now, does that mean Apple is going to give up on it or, you know, they're not going to double down? Um, it certainly doesn't. We've seen them make some new announcements about new capabilities in the platform. And so, you know, it may continue to grow. And as more users get more comfortable with mobile payments and as more users get on the latest hardware like that, that all is likely to work in Apple's favor. Uh, but one a big evolution that we we mentioned earlier on this show is that in the last operating system announcement, Apple announced that they would be supporting Apple Pay in mobile Safari. So you talked at the top of the show about, hey, don't forget, you can use these in-store, you can use these in-mobile apps, and you can use these on uh, in-mobile browsers. Well, Apple Pay, uh, up till now, has only worked in-store and in-mobile apps. And, you know, I would submit that for e-commerce, the mobile browser is the most important touch point and Apple really didn't play in that space. So once the new operating system comes out, we're going to see what their implementation is. And for the first time, we should be able to use our Apple Pay credentials to pay in the Safari browser. So that's potentially exciting. Uh, one way in which it's limited is it it's likely only going to work in mobile Safari. And there are quite a few users of Apple devices that choose some other browser like Google Chrome um, or Opera, for example. And uh, it's very likely that, that 
Apple Pay will not work in those non-Apple browsers. So we're, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I watched that uh, keynote, and that's definitely the case. The thing that I don't think you've mentioned is it will actually work on Safari Desktop. And the way it works is it um, it will actually kind of ping out to your phone, and you have them linked together. So there's some way of linking your phone and your desktop. You, you kind of see it with messages today where there was that default where they like just show up everywhere and everyone was like, oh, my God, what's going on? Um, so that there, there will be a Safari desktop kind of ability, but in it will um, to authenticate you. It will ping out to your phone to read your thumbprint. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. And so you could think of that that uh, laptop as then being very similar to the Apple Watch, where the actual security chip, that SE chip is still in your phone. Um, but as long as you're. Your laptop is paired with your phone. You're you're able to to initiate payments from your laptop. As long as your watch is paired with your phone, you're able to initiate payments from your watch, for example. Yeah, and there are there have been some hardware leak kind of things. This isn't announced yet that the next generation of MacBooks are going to have uh, thumbprint readers and and they'll have that chip on them themselves. So we'll have to see. Um, I don't think that'll definitely. That won't be announced when they do the next version of the iPhone, which is coming in September. So it'll probably be more towards late year, early next year. Yep. And I think there are a lot of people speculating that the the laptops could certainly have an SE chip in them. And also potentially the tablets could start having those SE chips in them. And I, I would, you know, bear in mind, you can have a thumbprint reader without the SE chip that's required for payment. So just because you accept thumbprints, uh, thumbprints doesn't automatically mean that your Apple can pay compatible, but but I suspect they're not going to make any new devices that take fingerprints and that don't also support the 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 secure element chip. Uh, so Apple is probably you know the majority if if it, our users have used a device for payment, that's certainly the one that's talked about the most. Um, as you mentioned, you know it works in store. Uh, they've done a good job of getting retail adoption for it in store. When they first launched, you know, everyone was doing that. Uh, we're still swiping credit cards, and there were a lot of snarky reporters that were, you know, writing these these reviews that, like, hey, maybe Apple Pay is solving a problem we don't have. The credit card works great and is really fast and hassle free, and everyone knows how to do it. And you know, is it actually easier to dig into your purse, find your phone, pull out your phone, uh, do your fingerprint to log into your phone, and then find the exact right? spot on the cash register to wave your phone in order to do those payments. And there was a good argument that the swiping the credit card was actually faster and easier. And as you sort of have pointed out, uh, as we're in this awkward transition where every retailer has a different policy about taking the pins, uh, uh, about taking the chips and what hardware they use, um, it's now become such a mess to use your credit card that that arguably Apple Pay is more convenient than a credit card. So I think that that's been a serendipitous uh, development for for all the the in store mobile payment systems and certainly Apple. But of course, uh, if you're on the Android side of the world, the the payment wallet that's built into the Android operating system is called Android Pay. And the latest version of Android Pay, I've, I've actually only recently gotten a chance to put through its paces, and it has a very similar feature set to Apple Pay now. So um, like Apple Pay, you load your payment cards onto it, so you have to use a traditional credit card. Like Apple Pay at the moment, you cannot put a checking account or an ACH account into it, so you can only use credit cards. Um, and then you can use it in store. You can use it in mobile apps that support it. But one advantage Android has is that Android already supports uh, mobile browsers. And interestingly, Google has chosen to build support in not only for their own browser, Chrome, but they've actually built in support for their competitors' browsers as well. So you you can use your Android Pay on a website in uh, the Opera browser or even in the Safari browser um, if, if Apple chose to support it. The a- API is there, um, and at, you know that's a potentially interesting evolution. Um, so I can't talk about Android Pay without talking about another payment offering that Google is piloting right now, which is really unrelated to Android Pay, 
and it's called Google Hands Free. And and so if you go to your app store on either Android or iOS uh, and you do a search on Google Hands Free, you're going to find a payment app that you can download and you can enter a wallet into uh, or a credit card into. Ironically, it will not use your Android Pay credentials. So so even if you're an Android Pay user, you'd have to separately um, onboard a credit card to Google Hands Free. But the idea behind Google's Hand Free is that the retailer has to install a little more software and equipment in their stores. And essentially what happens is when you have activated hands-free and you walk into a store, and even if your phone stays in your pocket or in your purse, the the phone uh, interacts with beacons in the store and tells the POS that you're in the store and have activated Google hands-free pay. So when you get up to that cash register to pay for your items or place your menu order or do things like that, you can simply say, I want to pay with Google to the clerk. And that's the clerk's cue to push the Google payments button on the point of sale. Um, and it'll actually identify you via your face and deduct your money from your account without you ever having to take out your phone, swipe anything, sign anything, or do any PIN. And so that everyone can get the app. Unfortunately, you can only use the app in a handful of venues in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think uh, McDonald's is one of the the pilot customers. So you can walk into a like the the uh, San Jose McDonald's and say, I want to pay with Google, and you can conduct a whole transaction without ever touching your phone, which is potentially very cool, but it, it does put a lot more onus on the retailer to have specific hardware and software added to their point-of-sale system to support it. Yeah, it seems like a pretty heavy lift on the retail side. You know, it took, you know, six to 12 months just to get the chip readers and we're not even really there yet. And so I don't know, that seems like anything that's going to touch the point of sale and this even adds like a beacon and stuff that, that seems like a really heavy, heavy piece of friction there for, for that one to get adopted. Yep. How, um, I guess the auth- authentication is the beacon and then the, um, does it use like a voice recognition and how, how secure do you think that is? Yep. Like, so it, it's, it's facial recognition. So, but what, what happens is, um, the only people that can pay on the terminal in that store are people whose phones have have authenticated themselves in the store. So imagine in the Bay Area that a million people have downloaded the Google Hands-Free app. There are only going to be six people standing in the McDonald's at any given time that have uh, uh, the app enabled. And so essentially when you get to that cash register and say, I want to pay with Google – the cash register just needs to figure out which of the six people in the store you are. And so the way it actually does that today is it uses facial recognition. So they literally build a camera into the point of sale that's taking a picture of your face, and they match that picture with the profile picture that you put into the Google Hands-Free app. And when they get a good enough match to make sure you're, you're you know, the – uniquely identified amongst all the users that are in that McDonald's, then they deduct the money from your account. Um, so it uh, it's reasonable in theory, it's reasonably secure. It absolutely relies on that authentication with your phone and the, the restaurant or the store's beacons being, being secure um, as sort of the, the first layer of security. And arguably, they wouldn't need to use the camera. Like, arguably, you could show the six pictures of the folks that you know are in that store on the POS and have the clerk pick the picture out amongst the six. And there are actually some uh, some early affinity programs that used a similar system to this. I think uh, Pinkberry has a, a similar system to this for customer affinity. And for the customer affinity, they just push the picture of the customer that they're they're serving, um, and that customer gets gets credit on their customer affinity program. Uh, Google, in an abundance of caution, is using this this proactive facial recognition. Um, but that's a particularly big hurdle for the retailer because that means they have to install a camera and not just one camera, one camera for every cash register in the store. Um, and so not only do you have the expense and logistics and maintenance issues associated with that, you also have potential privacy issues 
um, related to that and what's happening with the images that get taken on those cameras and, you know, even even ugly issues like could they be subpoenaed if there's a crime committed in the store and all all of those sorts of things. So it's a, a pretty complicated ecosystem, but it really shows you where the future of payments could be. Like it, it absolutely is the most seamless, friction-free payment method once you have everything working. And to your point, there's no way in the near future we're going to see millions of retailers adopt a system that complicated. But but I'm, I frankly am glad that Google is testing it. And if you happen in the Bay Area, it's certainly worth experiencing it. Um, because very much like the first time you use an Uber and you just get out of the car and don't pay, and you, you have that weird feeling like you just stole the ride um, – in, in much the same way you pay with Google hands free and it, it really feels like you just shoplifted something. Hmm. I'm just times like these. I'm glad I don't have a twin brother that likes to pull pranks. <laughs> uh, or, you know, perhaps that I don't have a Scott Wingo mask. Mm, even, yeah. Even scarier. Exactly. Hmm. Um, so say you get a Android phone manufactured by Samsung. Um, so I, I recently been playing with a Samsung uh, S7 Edge, which is a, a pretty cool phone. It comes with both the Android wallet app and a competing app provided by Samsung called Samsung Pay. Um, and Samsung Pay is Samsung's effort to sort of win the device payment space. And it supports all of the... Uh, or many of the features of Android Pay. It supports the in-store payments. It supports the mobile uh, app payments. It does not support the mobile web payments that Android Pay does. But Samsung Pay adds some extra bells and whistles that Samsung particularly likes. So Samsung Pay at the moment has better integration with Affinity programs. So it makes it easier to say pay for uh, an item and also get credit on your customer Affinity program. Um, and most importantly, the Samsung Pay app has the ability to offer promotions and special offers right in the app. So, so essentially, uh, advertisers can uh, can pay for opportunities to do upsells at the cash register. Uh, you you can incentivize customers to use a particular payment method in their Samsung Pay. Um, and I would remind the listeners. Getting a customer to use a particular payment method is a big deal, right? Like, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously the credit card interchange fees, which are the, the most expensive way a retailer takes your money. Many retailers offer a private card, um, and there's a lot of incentives. It's much less expensive for a retailer to get you to use that private card. So if I can get you to use your Best Buy credit card instead of your generic Visa card, that's a big win for Best Buy. And, you know, potentially an even bigger win is if I can get you to use your bank credentials, your uh, what we would call an ACH transaction, I can pay the lowest fees. Uh, also, if I get you to use a debit card instead of a, a credit card because of the the settlement in debit card fees, the debit card is a lower exchange rate. So, you know, for low margin retailers, saving those basis points by getting you to a more efficient payment method is really appealing. And the Samsung Pay offers the best tools to the retailer to sort of make promotional offers at the time of payment, um, which is interesting. I would also say it's a double-edged sword. The uh, As a result of that, the Samsung wallet feels the most spammy, right? Like a, a lot of the screen is dedicated to these offers and trying to entice you to subscribe to the affinity program for the retailer. And there's a lot more marketing in the GUI, whereas the Android payment GUI is much lower friction, much similar to the Apple Pay GUI. Um, and on that Android phone, the Android and Samsung devices are battling each other. So each time you launch one of those apps, it's going to tell you that it's not the default app and you should set it to be the default. And so Android and Samsung are both sort of fighting to be your default payment method on your phone. And, you know, frankly, it's pretty easy to get confused about which app you're using. And since you have to onboard the credit card separately into both of those apps, you, you may not have your credit cards in the app that you, you end up using. Hmm. Okay, got it. Uh, one last side note on the devices. I am primarily an Apple uh, iPhone user. I, th- I, th- I think you are as well. Is that right, Scott? I'm Emba device extras. Oh, Sorry, all right. Both. Yep. So what Android device are you carrying? 
Uh, well, I have a variety. Uh, right now, I have an S7 non-edge. So you may have already discovered this, but I have to say, uh, so I feel somewhat trapped that I have to use an Apple device. Uh, a lot of the interesting apps that come out in the retail space, a lot of my retail clients uh, launch apps on iOS first. Um, and at the moment, there's this odd... Uh, demographic that Apple users tend to spend a lot more on commerce than do Android users. So I feel like I I need to use the Apple device. I'm pretty locked into the Apple ecosystem. But in the process of testing these other mobile wallets, I've been carrying around the Samsung S7. And I have to say I'm having some device envy. Like the in many ways the hardware feels much better. Like I for the first time my phone battery is lasting the whole day. Um and there's you know there's some some nice new utilities in the in the Android uh Hardware, and particularly the Samsung hardware, that caught me by surprise a little bit. Do you uh, have a strong preference one way or the other? Yeah, the Google apps work really, really well on any Android device, much better than on Apple. It almost feels like they're purposely hobbled in some ways. Um, so get out your conspiracy theories. The, the The challenge I always have with the Samsung is just the it's not as clean on the screen interface. The typing, I, I'm just not as good at typing on it. And I get a lot of spurious touches, um, especially I had an edge when I had the S6. And that one, I, I couldn't hold the phone. I had to hold it in a very specific kind of the top and bottom, which is a very unusual way to hold the phone. Uh, or else it kept thinking I was pressing all over the screen with that edge kind of technology. Um, but even then, you know, sometimes I'll be... I'll be trying to hit something on the left side of the screen and it'll register a hit on the right. And and that's the same with, you know, I've got galaxy notes, all the Samsung devices I have, have that problem. It just feels like, and I, you know, I remember this goes back to Apple has a pretty, you know, solid patent on, on touchscreen stuff. And I, I think Samsung, whatever they've had to do to get around that patent, it just isn't as clean of a user interface in my experience. Interesting. I haven't run into that particular one, but it does feel like, you know, the, Every strength is also a weakness. There, there's um, a lot more flexibility in how you can set up your user interface on the Android devices, but it also means it works less consistently. And there are like little things that'll annoy me. Like um, if you're not authenticated on the Samsung phone, you can use the fingerprint reader to authenticate yourself, and sort of you know uh, that automatically activates the phone and gets you to the homepage. But if you've done that recently, you're authenticated on the phone. And so then you have to swipe the screen to get to the homepage. And, you know, for example, on Apple, even if you're authenticated, if you, anytime you use the fingerprint reader, it's automatically going to take you to the homepage. So I just, in, in some ways there's more, uh, individual flexibility in, in the Android OS and, and some of the extra widgets that Samsung adds. Uh, but the detriment of that is, less consistency from from phone to phone and certainly samsung puts a lot of their own gui on it which some people love some people hate and so you know one of my first exercises was jumped onto the web and read all these how-to articles on how to sort of get the samsung phone closer to the the -the out-of-the-box google experience yeah absolutely the 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 replacement apps are just not very useful. Um, I get a lot of email, as I'm sure you do, and the Samsung email client just like crashes. It just can't even like get itself together to even open. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, so moving off of devices to those other three categories of payment systems, uh, the next category I mentioned was bank payments. And so there are a lot of individual banks that you know are also interested in winning this payment space. Um, the, the one that we see marketing the most and that has the most traction is chase pay. Uh, and you know, again, you can download the chase app for your iOS or Android device. So, you know, now it's not specific to a single device like the, the previous systems, but of course it only caters to customers that have, uh, an account with chase. Um, and you know, it otherwise has fairly similar feature set again, uh, chase pay, does not work on uh, mobile web browsers at the moment. So uh, like uh, Apple Pay for now and uh, Samsung Pay, it's primarily going to be used as an in-store technology or a mobile app technology. Got it. Um, And then the one that we see the most interesting stuff happening in my view, and this is the retail category. So I mentioned up front that, that by far the most popular retail payment system is Starbucks. 
And Starbucks is really the pioneer that has proven that this model can work. Um, and so in their last uh, quarterly report, they announced that 24% of all their transactions are now happening on the, the mobile pay. Almost 40% of all Starbucks purchases happen with a Starbucks debit card with their stored value card. Um, and, you know, a, a full 24% happen in that mobile app. So that, that mobile app has really become the most popular mobile payment system in the world. And what's somewhat fascinating is uh, right now there's $1.2 billion of customers' money stored in that Starbucks ecosystem waiting to buy coffee. So there's $1.2 billion on deposit with Starbucks, which is actually more money than is on deposit with a lot of banks. Um, so to put that in perspective, Amex has about $3.3 billion of, of uh, value stored on it. So, you know, Starbucks is uh, very rapidly approaching the size of, uh, of some of the big the big banks in terms of, uh, the amount of money being stored in their ecosystem. So, you know, it, 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 uh, there are a bunch of interesting implications there, but it really shows me uh, how well adopted some of these systems can be. And of course, Starbucks payments work only at Starbucks. And so going back to that, who's going to win, it seems clear by the popularity of Starbucks that users aren't only going to accept a system they can use everywhere, that they're happy to use different systems in different places as long as there's commensurate value with that, right? And so one of the things that the Starbucks app does better than anything else is that the affinity program is seamlessly integrated. Anytime you pay with that Starbucks app, you're automatically earning those Starbucks stars. You don't have to do anything extra. And if you've earned a free drink, you can always redeem it using that Starbucks app. And so uh, it has very seamless integration with payment and with um, affinity. Uh, a little bit different than some of these other systems uh, the only payment system you can load onto the Starbucks app is the Starbucks stored value card. So for Apple, where you can load in a, any credit card or most credit cards, for, for Starbucks, you have to only use your Starbucks stored value card. And then, of course, you can link a variety of different payment methods to the stored value card. So you can link a credit card and say, I want to auto reload my, my Starbucks card every time it gets below a particular threshold from my Visa card. Um, and you can even use Apple Pay to replenish your, your Starbucks card. But, but when it comes time to buy that coffee, there has to be money in your Starbucks card in order for you to place that order. So that's one of the limitations of the Starbucks system right now. And you can do uh, PayPal. Yep, yep, you can you can use PayPal to load that as well. Um, from a user standpoint, a big difference between the other payment methods is when you use them in store, they all use NFC. So the Chase, the Apple, the the um, Android, and Samsung Pay uh, all use near field communications to talk to a specific uh, set of uh, point of sale terminals. Whereas Starbucks uh, shows a QR code on your phone and then they've upgraded all their point of sale terminals with CCD cameras that can take a picture of that QR code. And so the, the Starbucks method is actually much easier uh, to get compatible with a lot more hardware. Um, and it, it, uh, it does require uh, a little bit more work on the part of the user. You have to aim that barcode at the the Starbucks barista so they can aim the camera at the barcode. But if you stand in any busy Starbucks in the morning, you're going to qu qu pretty quickly see that Starbucks has very successfully trained all of America exactly how to use that QR code in the store. Yeah. The, uh, it's the best app on the watch as well. Uh, I find that it's like easier to aim it at the barcode than having your whole phone out and all that stuff. Yep. And then the last interesting thing on Starbucks is, you know, uh, this year they added, uh, order in advance pickup in the store that's using the same app and the same payment ecosystem. And so the fact that they built up all these users on the app has then made it really easy for them to extend that with a lot of new, more sticky services. Um, and so that's been another big benefit to Starbucks of having this, this rich ecosystem of, of uh, app users. Cool. And I've heard Howard Schultz kind of say that, you know, 
those two systems, the buy online and and the payment system, have single handedly just been dramatic same store sales increases because they can get some more people through faster in that that line and the payment system just really has sped it up. Yep, yep. And I think they are all in. So they've now deployed that that payment system uh, across the world. I know they just did China a couple months ago. Um, and, you know, this this definitely is not uh, – th- this is something that Starbucks sees real value in and is making real investments. And, of course, you know, in my view, they're the most successful player out there at the moment. So they're what we're all benchmarking ourselves against. Um, yeah. I've, uh, I've done some wacky stuff where I've used – you know, my primarily U.S. gain stars in London. I've done a do a previous order from a U.S. store over to a U.K. store. So it's it's a it's really well done how they've done it. It's pretty amazing. Yep. And if I had one pet peeve with the whole Starbucks ecosystem, I think their payments are brilliant. I actually think the usability on some of the the custom drink ordering could be better, and particularly the the reordering could be better. Like you know. uh in my case, I'm often buying coffee for colleagues, and I want to uh, repeat an order of multiple drinks, and that's not particularly uh, smooth to do in the Starbucks app at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, so moving to the next uh, retailer uh, that that has significant traction, uh, that would be Amazon, right? And uh, they, they would call it Checkout and Pay with Amazon, uh, they at the moment are a pure web payment system, so they're they're not trying to win the in-store payments. Uh, they're not built into any apps that I'm aware of right now, but they're really competing with with a payment uh, provider we'll talk about later, PayPal. And uh, what's interesting is they have many more users with many more users' credit cards and uh, shipping addresses stored than does PayPal. And so superficially, you'd look at Amazon's offering and say, hey, there's probably like 240 million users in their database. Uh, More of the shoppers on my website are likely to have Amazon credentials than any other wallet. Um, So that's the one I should accept if I want to make it really easy for my customers. And, you know, I think that value proposition would be very easy to make were it not for the pesky little detail um, that Amazon is also, you know, the single most scary competitor to to most other retailers. And so very uphill battle for those poor sales guys at Amazon that are selling, trying to sell this service to other retailers um, that they have to sell a service that's that's heavily branded by such a big retail competitor. And I feel like that's that's really a limiting factor to getting third-party retailers to adopt Amazon. Yeah, they actually tried a in-store payment system. It was kind of a square competitor called Local Register, uh, and that they announced in late fourteen, and then they sunsetted it about a year later. It did not get a lot of traction. Yep, absolutely. And there are a few edge cases where they also uh, accept those payments via apps as well. Um, and uh, there's some integration with Firephone, for example, uh, for the, the the two users that we know of in the in the U.S. that have that device. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the thing with Amazon, I think where they should go with payments is um, outside of retail. So, so you can imagine if I'm an airline or travel company, that's a really neat set of loyal customers that I kind of want access to, and they're they've demonstrated they. You know they're the top buyers online of products, so so I, I've often thought, you know, why don't they just kind of tie into those kinds of networks? But it doesn't seem to be a direction they've gone yet. Yep, and I, I would tell you another category that seems uh, perfect for them would be the, all the quick serve restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so an interesting one to watch. Uh, another retailer that's made a major investment in their own payment system is Walmart, and their their product is called Walmart Pay. Um, and they have now turned that on in all of their stores. So that's available in about 4,000 stores in the U.S. Um, and that works sort of backwards from Starbucks. So instead of you showing the QR code on your phone, the QR code is actually on the cash register. And you aim your phone's camera at the cash register. Um, and that has a couple of advantages. The um, 
there's never any incentive to hand your phone to the clerk, which is a big liability problem. You know, frequently if someone's tra- having trouble scanning their phone at Starbucks, they hand the phone to the Starbucks barista. And then when the, that barista breaks that phone, who's liable for that, for example? And so the, the Walmart system works sort of opposite. You, you connect your phone to that cash register by scanning that cash register's QR code. Um, and then, uh, the, the payment happens seamlessly after that. They, uh, Walmart accepts that, that system at both their, um, their cash registers and also their self-service registers. So you can self-service checkout with Walmart pay. Um, and Walmart hasn't uh, announced publicly exactly how many users they have on that system, but they have announced that it's, uh, v- that it's more than, than doubled since their initial launch. So presumably from a very small number, um, it sounds like it's, it's growing fast. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, at the moment, uh, you're not truly using Walmart pay when you pay online at walmart.com, for example. Um, but the, uh, Walmart pay does tie into your online credentials. So in theory, you could have your credit card stored one place and pay for it both at a cash register and on their website. And you, you could certainly imagine, uh, them rebranding the web payment system to also be Walmart Pay, and you could certainly imagine them starting to accept Walmart Pay at Jet, which could be a, another new avenue for them to get new new Walmart Pay customers. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. One, do they do they have it? Uh, so they have that thing. Is it called Savings Catcher? Is it all integrated with that? That you know, that's very popular with their their app. Yeah, it is not. So. Uh, like what you would imagine, one of the pen- potential benefits of using Walmart Pay would be that it automatically registers all your purchases in Savings Catcher and gives you a credit anytime that fi- Walmart finds a lower price. Um, and they are not integrated. So at the moment, you'd have to purchase, pay for stuff with with Walmart Pay, and then separately go uh to a different place in the same app and say, "And I'd like to use Savings Catcher on that last purchase." But what Walmart Pay does give you out of the box is uh, a digital wallet with all the receipts for everything you've ever paid for with Walmart Pay. So that's actually a pretty useful feature is that once you start using Walmart Pay as your regular payment method, you now can go into the app or log into the website and see everything that you've ever purchased. So if you ever have a issue with a return or you want to repeat a purchase or or you know you want to recommend something you bought to someone else. Um, it's very handy to have like all of those digital receipts, and you know ordinarily um, that that's not so convenient to do. So that is one of the benefits of of Walmart Pay. Uh, from as a pure marketer, I sort of wish they had come up with a more clever name than Walmart Pay, uh, because if you ever try to Google Walmart Pay, what you are not going to get is a bunch of articles about their payment system. What you're going to get is a bunch of controversial articles talking about whether they pay fair wages to their employees. <laughs> yeah. So probably an unfortunate SEO mistake to name it Walmart Pay. Got it. I and, agree. And then... Uh, emboldened, I would say, by the success of Starbucks and to a lesser extent Walmart, we're now starting to see a bunch of other retailers jumping in the bandwagon of launching their own payment system. And uh, the most recent one, I think is just a couple weeks old now, is CVS has has launched their own uh, store payment system. Hmm. And so we'll have to see if that's a precursor to many other retailers doing that as well. Is it Starbucks-ish or more Walmart pay-ish? So uh, it, I have not had an opportunity to use CVS Pay yet. It looks like it's closer to the Walmart Pay model where the, the QR code is in the CVS store. Got it. And it's, it's using that phone to work across or using that QR code to work across a wide variety of, of different phone hardware. Um, again, you know, all of this is coming down to wanting uh, to get customers more sticky, get customers coming to your store more, but also to really control how customers pay for goods in your store and to sort of steer them to those 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 payment methods that are more profitable for the retailer. So you you can imagine that the retailer views it as a huge win if they can get you or even just get their most loyal customers accustomed to always using their own payment method. And in a way, I look at it as sort of, another bite at the old um, store branded credit card model. So, you know, there was an era in which 
every retailer had a private credit card and there were, you know, a bunch of financial incentives for those, those credit cards. And over time, what happened is a bunch of retailers just didn't have close enough affinity with their customers that the, that the customers wanted to carry that retailer's brand of plastic in their wallet. And so a bunch of those, those store credit cards either went away or the store sold the business to a bank. Um, and a bank started managing it, and and we sort of ended up with a smaller subset of retailers that use private label credit card, and a bunch of stores that couldn't very successfully do it. And so, to me, in a way, these mo- uh, these mobile payment systems is another opportunity for the the stores to sort of own the the payment ecosystem. Got it. So then, that brings us to our last category of payment systems. Um, and that this is my catch-all, the other. Um, and we, we previously mentioned PayPal. Um, PayPal is the most successful digital wallet in, on the mobile web today in the U.S. So they have about 188 million users in their system. Uh, that's not as many as Amazon. It's, it's uh, more than any of the other systems. They're not a competitor to most of their, their retail partners. And so... Uh, you know, they don't have the branding problem that Amazon has. Um, and, you know, they're, they're going to be the most popular option you're going to see on websites if they offer a, a third-party mobile wallet for, for payments. And uh, an interesting thing, PayPal actually has a couple of different modes right now. So they have one mode where you'd have to know your username and password every single time you made a purchase. And that payment method is available to all 188 million users. But you can, as a user, also opt into their express payment method, which essentially leaves you logged in and lets it be just one click to pay with PayPal. And so that reduces the friction of a PayPal checkout quite a bit um, and seems really appealing. The The bummer is that it seems like at the moment that only 10 or 20 million of the PayPal users have opted in for that much faster checkout. Is what they're calling is that one touch? That's exactly what it is. Okay, all right. That made it seem like when I saw it, it it offered me that, and it made it seem like a fingerprint thing. I, I was a little confused by it. Yeah, just the, the touch, the touch thing, just like was so close to you know touch ID and ID touch and all those things. It made it feel like a new fingerprint way. Yep. I, I found the branding confusing as a consumer. So what I'm so that that branding is, I believe, primarily targeted at web users, and the reason it's confusing is I think they're trying to carefully avoid the patented uh, uh, Amazon language of one click. And so I think that's that's why we get ah. the goofy one touch. PayPal is in another one of those weird spaces. So PayPal, very commonly used on the web, also works in mobile apps. And PayPal has dabbled in a bunch of in-store payment systems. And I believe you can still pay with PayPal in Home Depot, for example, in the store. But... Um, I, I would say uh, that does not appear where they're putting the bulk of their focus at the moment. Yeah, that was kind of before eBay left, and um, I've experimented with that. And it's there's there's kind of two ways you can do it. You can actually log into your PayPal account from the terminal, and if if you want to do something painful, that's like the most painful checkout you'll ever do because um, you're like literally having to enter your email ID on this little you know. You know, it almost goes back to flip phone phones if if it only has a ten pads on in there uh, uh and then they can give you this card you can swipe and it's very strange to be like swiping for paypal it just seems like again you've kind of taken a step back in a weird way yeah absolutely um and so we'll have we'll have to see where where that goes i would also say if you're an older pay- retailer that's been taking paypal for a long time and you haven't made any changes PayPal has made a lot of improvements to their flows, and those flow, those new flows don't automatically get rolled out for for uh, all the legacy retailers. So it may be worth having a conversation with your PayPal rep and making sure that you're still using uh, the the flow that makes the most sense because they they do now have um, where they used to have to uh, always send you to a separate URL to go through the payment. Um, a process on a PayPal URL. They now have sort of an interstitial light box model and they have some other things that we think from a usability standpoint probably, you know, make more sense to the user. 
Yeah, and I think PayPal always is going to suffer from the fact it makes its money from charging the merchant two to three points, and then they make all their money off either PayPal balance or ACH. So they're strongly incented to keep you in those sourcing mechanisms. So then it like becomes this battle of wills to change the sourcing mechanism, and it's kind of like, yep. you know, do you really want to switch to a credit card? Do you re- are you sure? And then, you know, the user interface is like seems to be purposely clunky and defaults, especially if you have like recurring payments. I can never get it off of the, you know, the bank withdrawal ACH because they're that's where they make all their margin. And so it seems like they're misaligned with customers at, at some point in the whole system. Yep. I, I think that that is totally fair. Um and you know one of the, the the interesting thing that's been playing out is because they they steer you so much to those specific payment methods they've had a very acrimonious relationship with the the credit card issuers and Visa in particular um, and there there's been some risk that there'd be a fallout between PayPal and Visa which would certainly not be good for either party and so I do know that they they've come to some new business terms and announced a new more friendly partnership which I assume means they've they've sort of uh. Uh, come to a long-term agreement about exactly how aggressive PayPal can be in in uh, shifting you away from that Visa payment method, and so potentially you might see some of those tactics uh, get get uh, eased a little bit based on this new agreement. But but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, but that's a perfect transition to the a, a couple of other wallets that live in that other space. Um, and so th- this is the credit card issuers themselves. Uh, Visa has a product called Visa Checkout, and MasterCard has a product called MasterPass. Um, and they they have a very similar feature set to PayPal. Um, the They're potentially more appealing to the retailer. They're, they're certainly more cost-effective for the retailer. Um, they, they have some really uh, modern flows that are highly optimized to be low friction, which is great. They would have a lot of appealing features, uh, except to me they have, they have one huge hurdle, which is uh, they're both horribly branded. So when a consumer sees Visa Checkout or MasterPass, the immediate assumption is that you can only use that checkout flow with a Visa card or a MasterCard, respectively. And ironically, these are both universal wallets that will let you put Amex, Visa, and MasterCards in them. And so I, I feel like the their branding is really confusing to consumers. Um, and at the moment, they haven't gone very many consumers onboarded on either system. And so, you know, they each had, I think last time they announced their numbers, they were hovering around like 10 million users each. And so, you know, if you put a uh, Visa checkout on your website, you're not suddenly going to have 100 million users coming to the site uh, that, that already have their credentials and can now check out much faster like you would with PayPal or Amazon. Instead, you're going to have a new flow that's really only going to help you if you're willing to onboard your customer and get them to enter their payment credentials in the the Visa checkout process. And for me, that's not really where retailers should be investing. Like, I don't want to spend time on my checkout uh, getting users to to create a new digital wallet with Visa, right? Like, if I'm going to get them to store payment information during my checkout, I'm going to have them store it with me. Um, and if I'm going to use a third-party universal digital wallet, I'm going to use one that's done a good job of onboarding a bunch of customers. And so at the moment, I feel like Visa and MasterCard have a, a little bit of a chicken and egg problem in terms of getting users. And, you know, one of the things they're trying to do to get out of that is they've, they've, they're financially incentivizing retailers. And so, you know, we've certainly seen some retailers where it's pretty clear Visa and MasterCard have both given the retailer financial consideration for accepting Visa Checkout or MasterPass. And I think in the case of Williams-Sonoma, you know, we even saw, uh, you know, national Visa television commercials featuring Williams-Sonoma, and presumably that was part of the quid pro quo for Williams-Sonoma accepting uh, Visa Checkout. Hmm. Cool. Well, we're... um we're up against time. What do you, so you, you, I know you talk to your clients a lot about this. What do you recommend? So, so that's a lot to think yeah. about and, and, you know, a lot of options uh, and maybe a framework is, you know, so you got desktop, mobile, mobile web, mobile app and store. What, what's kind of the, the matrix there that you recommend people, you know, what are the must haves and then what are the, 
you know, recommended or experiment with these kind of set of things that, that you think folks should do? Yep. So, so first of all, in store, I think you should try to take everything because there's no extra friction to accepting 10 forms of in-store payment versus accepting one form of in-store payment. And particularly, you should accept all the NFC-enabled payment system. So, you know, if you already have to upgrade your credit card terminal to, to, to accept uh, chip cards, uh, for about 25 bucks, you can make sure it also accepts NFC payments. And so everyone should be getting NFC terminals. And, and every retailer should accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, Google Pay, I'm, I'm sorry, Samsung Pay, Chase Pay, all of those NFC payment systems. And, you know, at the moment, many retailers aren't. And they're not because they're trying to steer you to particular payment methods that they want you to use. And I, I think... In the long run, that's a huge mistake. We're seeing across the whole digital ecosystem that the customer's in charge and that you need to let the customer use what they want. And there really isn't a good customer-centric reason not to accept all of those payment systems in-store. So I'm telling my in-store guys that their long-term roadmap is to, to accept everything possible in the most seamless way. Um, so then when you move to online, I'm not very interested in payments that only work in apps. As we've talked about before, there's only a handful of retailers that that have uh, broad enough adoption on their mobile app that the mobile app is the, the most important touch point. So most retailers are going to have to sell stuff through a mobile browser. And so I'm mostly interested in payment systems that you can uh, use on a mobile browser. And I'd love to say on the mobile browser that you should try to use as many of them as possible. But on a digital experience on a browser, the customer has to choose from a menu of payment systems. And so if you accept them all, you're, you're kind of what we call NASCARing your checkout, right? Like you, you get to this point in the checkout and you're, you're saying, Hey, check out with MasterPass, check out with PayPal, check out with Amazon. And you're showing all these logos and it creates a big cognitive load and it actually hurts conversion on the e-commerce site. And so. What you'd really ideally like to do is look for cookies on the user's browser and see what wallets they've already subscribed to, and you'd like to only offer them checkout with the wallets that you know they are to use. And if they're an authenticated user of yours, if they have an account with you and they've used a payment method in the past, you ought to be cooking them and you ought to make that wallet that they've used in in the past their happy path for checking out in the future. So sort of personalizing that checkout based on what you know about the customer is the best option. If it's an anonymous customer and you don't know anything about them, then I think you want to offer only one or potentially two universal wallets. And so in the U.S. at the moment, that's most likely going to be PayPal for now. Hmm. Okay. Good. I know we are running super tight on time. I would, you know, say the other thing to be thinking about is how you're going to integrate affinity into all of these systems. Um, it is a little kludgy at the moment. You know, for example, uh, Walgreens has, has implemented Apple Pay for payments and affinity, but it actually means you have to, uh, launch Apple Pay on your phone twice and tap the payment reader twice. Um, which doesn't seem like a very good customer experience. So, you know, we still need to get those sort of affinity models figured out, the Samsung Pay or uh, uh, the Starbucks uh, app, you know, both have a better model there. Um, and then I, I'll put in some links in our show notes, but, but two things, if you're really interested in this payment space and you're trying to make some good decisions about your future, there is a great trade show totally focused on financial tech and payment systems. And it's a show we've talked about a couple of times. It's called Money 2020. Um, and it's at the end of October, October 23rd in Las Vegas at the Venetian this year. So I would highly encourage you to attend that show if you want to see the latest and greatest in payment tech. And then there is a great editorial website that uh, covers all of this stuff in much greater depth than I can understand, frankly. Um, and so if you really want to keep up with all this, uh, they, they have a, a daily or weekly newsletter you can subscribe to. And that, that's a website called Payments. And it's, it's sort of spelled phonetically. It's P-Y-M-N-T-S dot com. And uh, I'll, I'll put links to Money 2020 and Payments in the show notes. Are there a lot of new kind of announcements that happen at Money 2020? Has that kind of become the platform for exciting new payment stuff to come out? 
there are. So it, it maybe isn't the place that the really big players do their announcements. So, you know, for example, the retailers haven't necessarily announced new things at the show. Um, but it, uh, a big part of the show is, uh, sort of supporting, uh, startups. And so if you're a small company that has sort of a novel approach to payments, uh, that, that money 2020 has kind of become the platform where you launched your part, your product. And if you're a big company, if you're, if you're Visa, for example, or PayPal, you may not launch your products at that show, but you're certainly going to feature your newest products at that show. Got it. So, uh, Scott, uh, it, it has happened again. We've spent a perfectly good hour or so of our listeners' time. Yeah, we want to thank everyone for kind of coming along on the ride for this deep dive into payments. I know I've learned a ton from you, and thanks to you, Jason, for for uh, carrying the load on this topic. Um, and just to wrap up, we want to remind everyone that Jason and I are going to be live podcasting from the NRF shop.org digital summit, which is in Dallas this year, September 26 to 28. And when you do register, make sure you use that code Jason and ampersand Scott, Scott with one T to get that 10% off your full conference fee. We look forward to seeing you there. We're going to be doing some, um, a ton of podcasting. It looks like, and, and really excited about that live from the show floor. And we look forward to seeing you guys there. And so until next week, uh, wishing everyone a happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 